Well, hey, good morning, Sailorville. How are we doing this morning? All right. If you're in this room, thank you so much. I want to say a very special welcome to you. Also, those watching online, either right now or a little bit later, welcome to you as well. If you have your Bibles, we're in the book of Ezra, and we are in the last couple of weeks of our spring Sunday morning preaching series called God Help Us. God Help Us. Today, we've titled this message, God Help Us Repent. God Help Us Repent. Covering a lot of ground here this morning in Ezra chapter 9, but before we get there, I was just thinking about what a great series title this is, God Help Us. Didn't really hit me until just this last week. What a simple and profound declaration this phrase is. It really has three parts. Number one, we need help. God help us. Number two, our help comes from God. God help us. And then number three, we're all in this together and we all desperately need help, right? God help us. I love it. God help us is more than just a statement. It's more than a request. It's actually more like a confession, isn't it? It's like we're saying, Lord, on our own, we are not, we do not, we cannot, we will not. We desperately need you, so help us Please, And so if you're able and if you believe those words, pray these simple words with me as a humble confession this morning. God help us. Amen. Before Meredith and I moved here to Iowa, we lived in an older house in Pennsylvania that was sort of tucked back into the woods. Our backyard dropped off into a ravine and there was a little stream down there and railroad tracks and uh, there was always some kind of wildlife running around in our backyard and sometimes it made its way into our house. So one summer we noticed that there was a really, really bad smell coming from the pantry, which was under the stairs going down to the basement. It was a split-level house, and so our pantry was under the stairs. So Meredith turned to me one day and she said, hey, honey, maybe you should go check that out. It's starting to smell really bad. And I said, like an amazing husband, I said, babe, it will go away. <laughs> the women laugh and the guys are like, where is this one going? Well, it never went away, and we're still married today, so obviously, at some point, I went down to investigate the smell, right? I looked at every single can of soup and box of dried pasta that there was down there, but I couldn't find what was causing this terrible odor. And so I pulled everything out of the pantry. I emptied the shelves, took the brackets off the wall, did everything I could, and I still couldn't find anything. So I started ripping up the carpet, and that wasn't the problem either. And I thought, I've got pantry stuff everywhere. I've got carpet down there in the basement just flying all over the place. I'm all in now. I can't stop. And so I started ripping off the drywall of the pantry. And it's not behind this wall, and so I pulled down the drywall on the ceiling, and there's nothing there, and I can't find anything, so I start pulling off the drywall on the, on the side here, on the right-hand side, and I, I, I'm seeing nothing. And then when I l- remove the final piece of drywall, I see what is causing this terrible smell, and it's a nest of mice. And they're all curled up and they're hidden in some insulation there behind that last piece of drywall. And every single one of them was dead. Not like just recently dead, like fur and flesh dripping off the skeleton kind of (laughs) dead. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So these guys, the whole family of them, 
had been dead down there for a little while. And I am telling you that I'm really, really glad that Meredith wasn't next to me at this point because she would have seen her grown man husband dry heaving in the stairwell pantry at that point because I was just shouting out, God help me. I'd never smelled anything that bad. And to this day, even though we're in a different house, I still open up the pantry doors very slowly. Yeah, we laugh at that story, but the truth is this. We all have things hidden away in the dark recesses of our lives, don't we? Secret thoughts, hidden motivations, sins from long time ago that still haunt us. Some of us have been trying to cover up that stench of sin for a while now, but it just won't go away. We keep thinking, if I just ignore it, eventually it will fade, won't it? The problem is it doesn't. And so this morning, we're going to rip away the drywall in our lives. We're uncovering some of the hidden sins and putting them where they belong. And it all begins with repentance. Repentance. So God, help us repent this morning. Last week, we left our man Ezra in Jerusalem with a small group of Israelites who had returned from Babylon in the second wave of exiles that came from the Babylonian captivity. And now remember, Ezra, according to verse seven, chapter 7, verse 10, is a man who had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And so we found out last week that he was a man of authentic character who loved Yahweh and knew the Old Testament law inside and out. So imagine Ezra's joy when he was finally able to worship God in the newly rebuilt temple there in Jerusalem. It was something that he and the other faithful Jews had only been able to imagine while they were still slaves in former Babylon. But sin had hidden itself behind the walls of Jerusalem. And it didn't take long for that familiar stench to reach Ezra's nostrils. Less than five months after he arrived in Jerusalem, we read in Ezra chapter 9, the first two verses. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites too have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Mosquitoites. Come on. Every pastor has to do that. The Egyptians and the Amorites, watch this. They have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men had been foremost. And so here we find the first step on the road to repentance this morning, and we'll continue to uncover this as we walk through this passage together. Here's step number one. Call your sin what it is. Call your sin what it is. So what in the world's happening in these two verses? Well, since the beginning of the Jewish nation, God's desire was for them to be separated from other godless, godless people. 
They were to be set apart from those who didn't worship Yahweh, not because the Jewish people were superior in any way or because they had somehow earned that status, but because they had been chosen by the Lord to be the nation, the people through whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would one day come. And so for generation after generation, God is telling his people, don't intermarry with people who don't follow me. Don't water down your worship by inviting other small g gods into your family. Why? Because there is only one true God. And when you put anything or anybody else on the throne, even just a little bit, that's idolatry. It's sin. And sin is described in this passage with a few words that are really pretty strong. Look at verse two. Verse two says that the Israelites, number one, didn't separate themselves from the pagan nations around them. It's an active word that really means to intentionally create distance or to purposefully disconnect two things. So we get the idea here. Our passage calls the worship rituals of the pagan people abomination. So we've got didn't separate, and then they participated in abominations. It's another really strong word that refers to something that causes disgust or even hatred. And so the false worship of these foreigners was was disgusting in the sight of God. The Jewish exiles that had returned to Jerusalem were being flippant in their obedience to the Lord, and they were passive in their pursuit of purity. And at the end of verse 2, he really sums it up by saying that this led to a culture of what Ezra calls faithlessness. And instead of distancing themselves from the idol-worshipping pagans, they had turned away from the one true God. So here stand the Jewish exiles, the nation chosen by God to bring the Savior into the world. And here they are in the shadow of the newly rebuilt temple, a symbol of the very presence of God there in Jerusalem. And what was their response? Outright and blatant idolatry. D.A. Carson says this, the heart of all evil is idolatry itself. It is the de-godding of God. Wow. It's the creature swinging his puny fist in the face of his maker, saying, in effect, if you don't see things my way, I'll make my own gods. In fact, I'll be my own god. It's no wonder, Carson says, that the sin that most frequently leads to God's wrath is idolatry, that which removes God from his rightful throne. It's good. Recently, I was talking with a friend who just came to know Jesus and is really growing in his faith, and he was telling me about a time in his life when he claimed to be an atheist, and he made this incredible statement. He said, as an atheist, it's not that I didn't believe in God, I just believed that I was God. Wow. I wonder how many of us that would call ourselves Christians here today would admit that we sometimes live as though we are God. Like we are really on the throne of our lives, watering down our worship, living like practical atheists. You know, part of the problem, I think, is that we've come up with a bunch of different words to help us not feel so bad about sin in our lives. We talk about making mistakes or we say, nobody's perfect, come on. We hear about politicians and their indiscretions or their questionable choices, If someone dares to confront us, we shrug our shoulders and respond at the least with a quick, my bad. Or at the most, we say, how dare you judge me? Friend, if that's you, let's call it what it is. That is sin. 
And when you give your heart to anything but the Lord, and that could be a relationship or a job or a bank account or a hobby or a dream or a reputation or maybe even your kids' success in school or (gasps) sports. Nervous laughter. That's sin. And just because you're not as far gone as the family next door, that doesn't mean it's not sin. But let me just be the first to say that I'm in the same boat this morning. And so when I gossip because my heart wants to lift myself higher than someone else, that's sin. When I'm critical in my spirit because I think my idea is better than yours, that's sin. When I'm bitter and resentful because someone else gets the credit for something that I did, that's sin. When I'm flippant with my wife instead of genuinely listening, husbands, that is sin. And when I get short with my son because he wants to spend time with me, but I just want to sit on the couch and rest my eyes after a busy day. That's what people my age call take a nap. That's sin. Listen, it's not just a misstep. It's not just a misunderstanding Or it's not just daddy deserves being a little bit grumpy after a hard day. That is sin. Sin. And I wonder if maybe there are some things in your life that you've allowed to capture your heart other than Jesus. Maybe there's something that you've allowed to creep in and water down your worship. See, for the Israelites, it was marrying women who didn't know or follow the one true God. So what is it for you? Repentance recognizes the stench and it rips off the drywall and it calls sin what it is. So here's a question that might help you as you begin this journey of repentance this week. Ask yourself very simply, ask yourself this. What are the areas of sin in my life that I tend to downplay or justify or ignore? What are the areas of sin in my life that I tend to downplay, justify, or ignore? And I'm asking you to make the commitment to truly repent of that sin by calling sin what it is. It's sin. In fact, say it with me on three. One, two, three. Sin. Some of you are very uncomfortable saying that. We'll try it again. One, two, three. Sin. There, you've said it once. You could say it again this week. So Ezra, he hears this news about the way the Israelites have ignored God's commands and he jumps and they've jumped headlong into sin with the pagan nations around them. And how does Ezra react? Look at Ezra chapter nine, verses three through four. Ezra says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and my beard and I sat appalled. And then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And so friends, here's the second step in our journey of repentance this morning. You see it in Ezra's reaction to the Israelite sin. You need to, number two, see your sin like God sees it. Number one, call sin what it is. Number two, see your sin like God sees it. Twice in these verses I just read, scripture says that Ezra was appalled when he heard the news. He was completely undone. He's shocked. And he's in horror. And he tears his outer cloak and his inner garment, sort of like a jacket and a t-shirt. And then he starts pulling out pieces of his own hair and his beard. And it seems a little strange to us because when was the last time you got some bad news and the first thing you thought of doing was ripping your shirt in half? 
That's odd to us, but it wasn't a strange reaction in Ezra's culture. In fact, it was pretty standard practice to see someone tear, out, tear off their outer cloak when they got news that made them really sad, especially when they found out that somebody that they cared about deeply had died. And Ezra is so completely undone by the sin of his people that he reacts as if someone had just died. He pulls out his own hair and he rips out parts of his beard Now, guys, I've never been able to grow a super manly beard like some of you, but I do shave once a week on Sunday morning. You're welcome. And this morning, like I do almost every single week, the first time I touch my face after I shave, there's like this half a second of of shock. I feel a little bit exposed. I feel naked almost. My face is vulnerable all of a sudden. That's exactly the point here. Sin was so serious to Ezra because sin is serious to God. Watch how God refers to the sinful Israelites in Isaiah 65. These people are a stench in my nostrils, an acrid smell that never goes away. And then again, back in the, way back of the New Testament, speaking of sin in Revelation chapter 18, her sin stinks to high heavens. <laughs> I thought my mom made up that phrase. You stink to high heaven. Every junior high parent, parent of a junior higher knows that that phrase is true. Like a dead carcass hidden away, sin stinks to God. And how did Ezra respond? He lays himself bare as if naked before the Lord of the heavens. And he says, God, help us. Help us repent. Cause us to see our sin the way you do. Help us be repulsed by the slightest hint of sin. Make us dry heave when we even get a whiff. I think one of the greatest ironies in the church today is that there are so many people that claim to be followers of Jesus that live with almost no signs of joy in their lives. In the words of our friend Pastor Kurt from a few weeks ago, some of you Christians need to inform your face. You've got the joy, 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 joy down in your heart, but you need to send a missionary from your heart to share the good news with your face. I think there's a reason that so many of us in this church don't have joy in our lives. I think it's because maybe you've never experienced a real deep conviction of sin. And so maybe we might say it like this. You won't get real joy until you get real about your sin. You won't get real joy until you get real about your sin. See, when you and I begin to see sin the way God sees it, then we're on our way to true repentance. When we begin to understand that our sins, each and every one of our sins, not just the quote-unquote big ones, that my sin and your sin nailed Jesus to the cross. Picture that, friends. Picture you nailing Jesus to the cross because of every one of your sins until you and I see the seriousness of our sin. We'll never see the sweetness of our Savior. J.C. Ryle said it this way, Christ is never fully valued until sin is clearly seen. And so maybe you're struggling to see your sin as serious. Or maybe it seems like all this talk about sin is maybe for somebody else. After all, you're a pretty good person, right? Better than the guy sitting next to you, at least. Here's what God says about people that don't acknowledge the seriousness of their own sin. Romans chapter 1. They were filled with all manner of righteousness, evil, covetousness, 
malice. They're full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. They invent kinds of evil, disobedient to parents. It's in that list. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, but they not only give themselves to them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Friends, some of you have hearts that smell like death. Does your sin stink to you? Or is it just a faint odor that you tolerate, hoping that one day it will go away on its own? Here's a little exercise if you want to grow to be more like Jesus this week. Just read back through the end of Romans chapter 1. I just read it, 29, 30, 31, 32. Underline all the words that describe the particular brand of sin that you tend to struggle with. (laughs) Don't just underline all the acceptable ones or maybe the ones that you think everybody struggles with, but take some time and really look at your sin the way God sees your sin. It's a good exercise. And here's what we know. If you want to defeat your sin, you need to define it the way God does. If you want to ever defeat your sin, you have to define it the way God does. So number one, call your sin what it is. Number two, see your sin the way God sees it. And then number three this morning, confess your sin to God and to others. So here's our guy Ezra. He's sitting nearly naked in front of the temple. His clothes are torn. He's got clumps of hair from his own head and his beard laying on the ground beside him. But a crowd has gathered there with him too. And verse 4 says, the small crowd is full of people who, just like Ezra, tremble at the word of God and are also appalled at the sin of their nation. Ezra might have felt like he was all alone, but he wasn't. And by the way, when you take a stand for what's right in your school or in your family or at your job or in your neighborhood or yes, even in our country, it will feel sometimes like you're all alone. But you're not. You are not standing alone. There will always be godly men and women who will join you. If you wait long enough and look hard enough, you'll never be alone when you do the right thing. And so here in front of the small gathering of faithful people, Ezra falls to his knees and he spreads his hands out to the heaven and he shows us the next step in this journey towards true repentance. Look at verse six. He says, oh my God, I'm ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you. I can't even raise my eyes to you, God. I don't even wanna, as if I'm looking at you in the eyes, I, don't even, I can't even do that. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And then in verse 10, Ezra says, we have forsaken your commandments. And he wraps it up in verse 15 with this statement. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. None can stand before you because of this. So he's on his knees with his head down. And if you thought Ezra was going to sugarcoat or gloss over the sins of his nation, he doesn't. He throws it all at the feet of the judge. And he's ashamed and embarrassed by the sinful way the Israelites had responded to God's commands. He can't even lift his head. But he includes himself in the confession. And even though he hadn't directly disobeyed God's command not to intermarry, he includes himself as one of the people. See, Ezra knew That while he might not have been guilty of that specific sin, he was a sinner just like everybody else. It's really easy to see the sin in the lives of other people, isn't it? It is for me. It's harder to recognize and confess a sin in our own lives. 
But that's the way to true repentance. To uncover the hidden sin in our lives first and then to encourage others to do the same. I love how the author of Hebrews addresses this in Hebrews chapter 3 starting 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, watch what he calls this now, an evil, unbelieving heart. And here's the response. It leads you away to, it leads you to fall away from the living God. Here's the remedy. But exhort one another every single day as long as it's called today. What's today? Today. When we get to tomorrow, it's going to be called today. Yesterday was called today when it was yesterday. It doesn't matter what day it is as long as it's called today. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The writer warns us that are in Christ, that share in Christ, that's people who love and follow Jesus. We call them Christians. To keep short accounts of our own sin. To confess our sins to God and to others early and often. And if we don't, you'll start getting used to that stench of sin and pretty soon you won't even notice it in your own life. And so to confess really means to say the same thing that God says about your sin. And so here's something you can do this week to practice what someone has called the terrible gift of confession. Say it out loud. Confess your sin out loud. Actually do it. You don't have to get up on the roof and yell it to your neighbors or make a TikTok video or anything like that, right? Just verbalize your confession. And here's what I know about my own life. If I don't say something out loud, then it's a whole lot easier for me to push it aside. But once I say something, especially if someone else hears it, then there's some built-in accountability to follow through. So this week, confess your sins out loud, early and often. And if you really want to get crazy and do what the Bible says you should, then confess your sins out loud to someone else that loves you. Once you've identified sin in your life and you've called it what it is, and once you've started to see that your sin is so serious in God's eyes that it sent Jesus to the cross, then confess your sins. You say the same thing that God says about your sin. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Don't try to sweep it under a rug or gloss over it until it goes away. Confess it out loud. And then, number four, claim the promises of forgiveness for your sin. Oh, this is so good. A few days ago, Judah, our nine-year-old, came running upstairs in our house. He was all excited. He was jumping around. He was talking like a mile a minute. And we finally got him calmed down, and we said, dude, what is going on? What's the matter? He told us that he had just scored a record number of points on his favorite video game. And he was jacked. He was so pumped. And so as a wise father trying to help him understand important life lessons like where to find his value and his identity... I responded by saying something like this. Judah, mommy and I have talked and we've decided that the reason we love you so much is because you are so good at video games. <laughs> That's why we only have one kid. God is saving the rest of you from my bad parenting. Listen, if you're a Christ follower here this morning, there isn't anything that you can do to make God love you anymore. You can't earn it, and you can't lose it. He'll never love you any less. The gospel tells us that Jesus went to the cross for your sin. Your sin put him there. He went to the cross in your place instead of you. God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live 
and to die and to be resurrected so that those who believe in him would receive the free gift of eternal life and forgiveness. That's John 3.16. And here's the good news, 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ follower, listen to this. God hates sin, but he loves to forgive. It's who he is. He can't not. And when we confess our sins, it's like we're crawling up on the Father's lap and feeling his strong arms around us. And when we say, I'm sorry, he says, I forgive you. I've always forgiven you. And I always will. It's who I am. And I love doing it. One of the greatest lies you'll ever believe is that you are closest to God when your life is going exactly as you planned. When everything is clean and controlled and looks perfect. But friend, watch this. Jesus is nearest to us in our weaknesses. When we are being pruned, the pruner has to get close to the vine to prune it. When we fail, when we come back to him and confess, that's when Jesus feels nearest to us. And in verse 8 and 9 of Ezra chapter 9, Ezra alludes to five different ways that God showed himself gracious to the children of Israel in spite of their pattern of repeated sin. And see if you can pick those ways out at home or with your community group this week. But I bet you have ways you can think of in your own life right now. So in fact, this week, when you're sitting down at the dinner table with your roommates or your family or your friends or whoever you have over, see if you can count all the ways that God has been gracious to you, that God has shown you his love and forgiveness in spite of your disobedience. I bet it's a pretty long list because it would be in my life. The truth is this for every person listening today. God's grace is more powerful than your sin. God's grace is more powerful than your sin. In fact, maybe that's the line you need to remember this morning. Maybe you're listening to this thinking, there's no way I could ever be forgiven. And maybe you heard us talk about all this talk about, about coming to know Jesus as your personal savior and you've sort of dismissed the idea, believing that you're too far gone or that your sins are too great or maybe you've used up all your chances at redemption. Listen, friend, God's grace is more powerful than your sin. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've already placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but you've let that smell of sin linger in your life for way too long. Can you smell it? It's time to stop making excuses. Stop pretending that your sin doesn't stink. Call it what it is. See it the way God sees it. Say it out loud and then fall into the faithful, forgiving arms of your Father God. As the band comes to close our service here this morning, I just want to offer you an opportunity to respond. Now listen carefully, if there's something that you need to confess, if God has convicted you today of something that you've tried to hide in your life but you just can't keep covering it up, if there's something that you've been ignoring or trying to tolerate until it goes away, if there's something that's nagging at you right now, sin that you glossed over, or something that you caused that was a hurt in someone else's life that you've downplayed, or somebody that you need to go to right now and ask forgiveness, in a few moments I'm going to pray out loud the words of Psalm 51 over us. The words are a confession written by a man who was a murderer for sure, a liar definitely, an adulterer, and maybe even a rapist, depending on how you read the story. And this man 
knew a little bit about the stench of sin in his own heart. His name was David. Remember him? He's the shepherd king that was called a man after God's own heart. And so if there's love and forgiveness and salvation for a man like David, then it's got to be there for you too. So why not come to Jesus today and confess to him what he already knows? Lay it bare before him. Crawl up in his arms and accept his forgiveness. And so I'm going to invite you as I pray these words at the bottom of the stage. If that's you, if you need to confess or if you just want to pray or you want to seek forgiveness, to come and join me. It takes some courage to confess in front of other people. But if God's doing something in your heart, don't ignore him. Don't tolerate the sin in your life. It will not go away. because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins. I will be clean. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels. They'll return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You don't desire sacrifice, or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Let's say this together. Oh, God, help us repent.